Coming up this evening, live from New York City. Facebook fact-checking an economist for using the textbook definition of recession. We talked to the economist Phil Magnus. The biggest quarterly employee drop in Amazon's history. Nearly 100,000 workers have vanished since after GDP declined. Well, a proposed SEC climate change rule on agriculture producers create a Netherlands-style farm crisis. We talked to an economist about it. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here for NTD Business. The White House is working hard to reassure Americans that we are not in a recession. And it seems to be getting some help. Facebook recently fact-checked an economist for saying that a recession is two straight quarters of negative economic growth. Phil Magnus says that's simply the textbook definition of recession, but Facebook threatened to cut his reach if he repeatedly shares, quote, false information. With us live is Phil Magnus himself, Research and Education Director at the American Institute for Economic Research. Phil, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Why do you call this Orwellian? Well, it is an outright act of censorship premised on redefining a basic term from economics. We know from textbook economics, almost everyone takes in college, that a recession has a working definition, kind of a rule of thumb, of two consecutive quarters of negative growth. And we just met that definition, but the White House got out ahead of it and tried to write that definition basically out of existence to discredit it because they wanted to tell a different story that's suitable for the election. Usually we think of Orwellian as government overreach or extreme government overreach. In this case, you feel that the government is working with these fact-checkers to, to do this? Well, it's certainly the case that uh, the fact-checkers and Facebook that relies on the fact-checkers through a partnership uh, are carrying water for the Biden administration. I mean, this is a term that uh, it existed in the Wikipedia definition of a recession until about a week ago, and suddenly when the Biden administration started putting up talking points, it gets changed. Uh, it's something that was accepted in textbooks until a week ago, and suddenly the Biden administration challenges it, it gets changed. I think even Wikipedia has changed the definition of definition, but that's a whole other exactly. conversation we can have. It's incredible. The White House says that only the National Bureau of Economic Research can call the recession. Why is that an issue for you? Well, the National Bureau of Economic Research publishes a very rigorous, methodical assessment of business cycles. They date business cycles from the beginning until the end of a recession. The problem with this, and it's not any fault of NBER, uh, but the problem with this is they are a historical measure. They look at recessions retrospectively. They measure them looking back in time. It's often more than a year before they'll issue a ruling or a determination that a recession is underway. And yet what the Biden administration is trying to do is invoke the NBER standard and definition in real time, fully aware of, fully knowing that NBER will not rule for another year. And what this does is it buys them time, gets them past difficult election cycles and other political complications. Can you tell me a little bit about how Nixon sought to redefine the word recession in the 1970s and how it worked out for him? Absolutely. So this is almost a uh, textbook repeat we're seeing right now of what happened in the Nixon administration. Because in November 1973, the United States went into a recession. It was right after an oil shock caused by a foreign war. This is the Arab oil embargo that was imposed in 1973. 
and uh, it triggered a whole uh, series of, of negative economic uh, consequences. There was inflationary pressure, uh, economic downturn, uh, but it wasn't the only trigger. There were other structural issues at play. And what happened is Nixon gave his State of the Union address in 1974, and he declared that there will not be a recession in the United States of America in 1974. A few months later, they hit the two-quarter mark of the conventional definition, and the news started reporting on it, said that we've hit a recession. Well, what did Nixon do? He dispatched his team of uh, handlers and advisors and cabinet secretaries to go on the uh, on television, go to the newspapers, and tell them that, no, this was the wrong definition of a, a recession. We had not, in fact, uh, met the NBER definition, even though it wouldn't be announced for another year. Did it work back then? Do you think it's going to work this time? <laughs> well, uh, we all know that the 1974 recession was uh, one of the more severe ones in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, the 70s has a reputation as a time of economic turmoil, in large part because of this event. So Nixon was being very wishful in his thinking, and uh, he tried to spin the media, but the media was uh, much more skeptical of him at the time. Uh, so they did call him out. They did challenge him on that. And when it became too obvious to deny, uh, there was a general recognition that a recession had set in. Right now, I think we have, unfortunately, a much more compliant media that, uh, rather than scrutinizing power, right, rather than scrutinizing politicians, is taking a, uh, a stance on one side of the argument, uh, taking a stance in favor of the Biden administration. And unfortunately, that's simply the media culture we have today. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because obviously is the textbook definition. I don't think there are many people who'd argue with you on that. How about within the economic sciences space? Is there pressure to conform within that as well? Well, I think there's an open discussion, and what really most economists do is they recognize there are multiple ways to understand and diagnose a recession. The reason why the two consecutive quarter uh, standard has become very popular is because it's a very functional real-time rule. And in fact, when we look back since World War II, it has diagnosed, I think, uh, 10 out of 10 of the most recent recessions pretty accurately. Uh, and the only one that, uh, that is somewhat uh, semi-inaccurate uh, on is uh, a recession in the early 2000s that had two quarters that were non-consecutive. So it almost met the definition. Uh, so there's a little bit of gray area there, but people think it's a functional rule, and that's why it appears in almost every mainstream economic textbook. At the same time, economists do view the NBE is something of a historical retrospective gold standard because it is a rigorous measure, but we don't use it to make policy in real time. We use it to understand past events and try to learn from those past events. So the Biden administration, even though it's invoking the NBER standard, it's doing so very inappropriately and uh, veering away from what the NBER intends that measure to be used for. Phil Magnus, thank you. A-I-E-R. Appreciate it, Phil. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. And our sister media, the Epoch Times, is one of the most recent victims of Twitter censorship. Last Thursday, Twitter blocked all content from the outlet without explanation, prompting a flood of criticism. Since then, Twitter has removed the warning. Anthony Shaw Marshall has the details. Twitter has stopped its censorship of content from the Epoch Times following a flood of public criticism, including condemnation from three U.S. senators. On July 28th, Twitter began blocking all content from the Epic Times, describing it as unsafe and encouraging users not to proceed. It happened less than a week after ET published its new documentary, The Real Story of January 6th. On the same day, it also posted an interview with sex trafficking survivor Eliza Blue on its program, American Thought Leaders. 
Senator Marco Rubio demanded that Twitter explain itself for this outrageous act of censorship. Senator Ron Johnson described the action by Twitter as alarming. Meanwhile, Senator Rick Scott asked, Where's the respect for the free speech and freedom of the press? We all remember your biased censorship of the New York Post and how that ended for you, Scott said. Just weeks earlier, New York Times journalist Alex Berenson reached a settlement with Twitter after suing them for banning his account for alleged COVID misinformation. Upon having his account reinstated, he reposted the same tweet that got him banned. An article for Epic Times released a statement about the Twitter ban. While it remains unclear why Twitter targeted us, what is clear is that Epic Times is different from most other major news organizations and that we dare to follow the stories where the facts lead. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Now, Wall Street ended lower today, but that's after its biggest monthly gains in two years in July. The Dow fell 47 points, one-tenth of a percent. S&P 500 lost 12 points, three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq dropped 22 points, two-tenths of a percent today. And prospective home buyers, home prices still aren't dropping, but they are growing, albeit at a far slower pace. Analytics firm Black Knight says annual price appreciation fell 2 percentage points from 19.3% to 17.3%. On the one hand, rising mortgage rates and inflation are cooling the market. 30-year fixed rate mortgage, the most popular one, is at around 5%, according to Mortgage News Daily. But on the other hand, relatively low supply and high demand are preventing prices from actually falling. In the latest quarter, nearly 100,000 employees disappeared from Amazon's global workforce. The biggest drop in the company's history, in fact. It prompts the question, what will future employment look like, numbers look like as GDP declines? And Didi's Con Fredrickson has more. The largest ever quarterly drop in employees in the history of Amazon. Almost 100,000 employees have disappeared from the company. And this is happening as the June unemployment rate remains at 3.6%. We're going to see worsening unemployment uh, numbers uh, over the next uh, several several quarters. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at AIER and the author of Fearless, Wilma Sauce and America's Forgotten Investor Movement. Wright says, Employment is a lagging indicator, meaning the economy moves down first and then there's unemployment a bit later. This is happening as jobless claims have hit an eight-month high. With all those that those government spendings, all those projects, all those things, all those money that uh, we pumped in into the system, there are a lot of job opportunities, right? And that seems that's why we are having a good, uh, good time with employment. But that is likely to change. Frank Xie is a business professor at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. Xie says it could change very quickly and that the technical recession could last around a year. The United States has gone through 34 recessions since 1857, and on average, they last 17 months. Though the six major recessions since 1980 have, on average, lasted less than 10 months. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Despite talk of a food shortage, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission proposes adding more regulation on the agriculture sector. It could put a significant financial burden on small family-owned farms and could lead to lower food production in the United States. The SEC proposal is titled The Enhancement and Standardization of Climate-Related Disclosures for Investors. 
would require companies to disclose what they're doing or not doing to reduce their climate footprint. And here to talk with entities Don Ma about it is Daniel Lakai. He's the chief economist at the Chess's Hedge Fund. Daniel, thanks for coming on today. So I want to talk to you about governmental climate regulations. So the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission proposed new climate rules a few months ago where agriculture producers like farmers and ranchers are required to report climate impacts if they want to sell to public companies. Now, a number of groups and politicians are against this. Forbes today even came out with an article that said the SEC's climate proposal sets the table for a Netherlands-style farm crisis in the U.S. So my question to you is, are there any parallels compared to European countries? Certainly. I think that uh, what we can say about uh, the current uh, proposal is that it's not as bad as what we saw, for example, in the Netherlands. However, it is truly a big problem in the sense that it puts an even further strain on the global food supply chain. Uh, We're seeing uh, regulation that, and, and it's important to say this, that all of these regulations are not going to make a significant positive impact in terms of environment, but are going to generate a very significant impact on supply because it's making it virtually impossible for farmers to truly generate the level of production that is required in order to offset the challenges created by the Ukraine crisis. So uh, what we have seen in Canada, in the Netherlands, in Germany, etc., are uh, backfiring laws are actually laws that don't improve the situation. They're actually making things a lot worse in an environment in which uh, governments should be implementing measures that would help ease supply chains, not make them even more strained. So if the proposal doesn't do anything for the climate and, and it doesn't help producers produce more, what is the goal? What is the point of the regulations? This is the problem of developed countries' regulations in terms of climate, that they don't look at the global picture. For example, you ban fracking in Europe, you end up uh, depending even more on uh, natural gas coming from the United States that is produced by fracking. You ban the mining of copper or aluminum or, or the production of aluminum or the mining of some rare earth in Europe, and you depend more on China. The, the exact same thing is happening with food. By making it uh, uneconomical and making it more difficult and more bureaucratic, what ends up happening is that developed nations produce less and we depend more on nations that actually don't have any of those regulations and that actually do not have the same kind of respect for the environment. So think about this. Why did we end up having such a large dependency on Ukraine and Russia? Because the production in developed economies was being shrunk artificially by misguided regulation and what ended up happening is that uh, numerous nations specifically in the european union ended depending on russian uh, production so that is something that is happening in numerous parts of the economy in various areas of industries from renewables to energy and now in farming i see those are some good points daniel lakaye chief economist at tresses thanks for coming on today Thank you so much. Just to note, the SEC's climate disclosure rule is just a proposal for now. 
It's also worth pointing out it may never be enacted. There's no unilateral consensus in Congress. Republican lawmakers have already urged the SEC to withdraw its proposal. Furthermore, the U.S. Supreme Court could view it as overreach. But besides environmental regulations, farmers in Europe may have to deal with the shortage of fertilizers. The world's largest chemical company is set to further cut its production of ammonia, an important ingredient in fertilizer. BASF's decision comes amid soaring natural gas prices. It says it's reducing production of facilities that use large amounts of natural gas, such as ammonia plants. Ammonia is a key ingredient in fertilizer production. It also plays a role in plastic manufacturing. Company CEO says in 2023, farmers would see higher fertilizer costs, maybe even see less of it. Chemical companies are the biggest industrial users of natural gas in Germany, and ammonia is the single most gas-intensive product within that industry. Other German ammonia makers have said they can't rule out production cuts. Some good news in Europe, though. Ukraine has finally begun shipping grain out of its Black Sea ports again after months of blockade. It's under a safe passage agreement with Russia, and it hopes this will help ease food shortages globally. Matthew Laurent reports. The first cargo vessel to leave Ukraine carrying a grain shipment has finally sailed from the Black Sea port of Odessa after being blockaded there since the Russian invasion began five months ago. Ukraine's government is calling it a day of relief, and the Kremlin has called the Rizoni's departure very positive news. Russia and Ukraine make up nearly a third of the world's grain exports. And the conflict has worsened the global cost of living crisis, particularly for countries threatened by food shortages and hunger. A young engineer named Abdullah Jendi is aboard the vessel, which is bound for Lebanon. He says it's an indescribable feeling to be going back home, like being freed from detention after a long time. Every day, he says, the alarm would go off in the port and he and his crew would be afraid they might accidentally be hit in an attack. He's still scared of explosive mines left in these waters. He thinks it could take the ship two or three hours to get out of the area safely. The shipment is the result of the safe passage agreement made between Russia and Ukraine's government last month. The United Nations is warning of multiple famines this year. Russia denies responsibility for the food crisis and blames Western sanctions for slowing exports, and it blames Ukraine for the mines. The Ukraine president's office has previously said that 17 ships are docked waiting departure on the Black Sea, with almost 600,000 tons of cargo, most of it grain. And Taiwanese and American officials reportedly expect House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will visit Taiwan during her trip to Asia. This is according to people familiar with the matter who were cited by Reuters and some other media outlets too. Taiwanese officials said Pelosi will stay on the island overnight. U.S. and China have both deployed military forces to the region around Taiwan following China's threats of a military attack in response to the possible visit. Despite continued saber-rattling for the Chinese regime, U.S. leadership and public figures have come together in support of Pelosi and her visit to Taiwan. We'll keep you updated. So the comments this evening. The winner of the second-largest Mega Millions jackpot ever faces a mega tax bill. How much will they actually take home? 
A river cruise in Chicago showcasing the city's architecture and its history. We bring you with us. That and more coming up on NTD Business. A lottery player in Illinois has won the Mega Millions $1.28 billion jackpot. But they're going to have to pay some hefty taxes. The winner can either take a lump sum of $747 million or $1.28 billion paid out in installments. If they take the lump sum, the IRS withholds 24%. That'd leave the winner with nearly $570 million. Where the federal income tax of 37%, the total winnings dropped to $471 million. And if the winner is a resident of Illinois, they'll also have to pay a state income tax of nearly 5%. That leaves them with a total of $434 million. And while that figure is a lot less than the original amount, it should be enough for the winner to take care of most future expenses. You'd think. And Chicago's high crime rate may be grabbing the nation's attention in recent years, but for decades, Chicago was known for its architecture and influence on the world's skyscrapers. We take a look at river architectural crews that showcases the experiments and innovations that made Chicago the city of architecture. Here's the story. We were really at the forefront of so many building techniques, but the real key, I think, is the fact that we invented the skyscraper. Priscilla Mims, a docent with the Chicago Architecture Center, a nonprofit cultural organization, explains that innovation and a myriad of architectural styles made Chicago the city of architecture. It was the fact it had an underlying metal frame that held up the building as opposed to the outside walls. And this concept of an underlying frame allows building to go taller and taller and tallest. The invention of metal frames allowed architects to experiment with different styles of skyscrapers in Chicago after the Great Fire in 1871 destroyed one-third of the city. As a result, Chicago became the birthplace of the world's first skyscraper, the Home Insurance Building, completed in 1885. Other styles of skyscrapers with elaborate ornamental details followed. The Wrigley Building, which opened in 1921, is adorned with French Renaissance-styled cladding, molded into mythic figures, animals, and natural elements. It's covered in this gleaming white terracotta, uh, which just stands out all over. The neo-Gothic-style Chicago Tribune Tower, completed in 1925, was the headquarters of the Chicago Tribune newspaper until 2018. I love Gothic architecture, um, but also because of what it stands for, and it was freedom of the press. The marina towers are unique to Chicago. Opened in 1962, the structure was the tallest residential building in the world. 
people describe them as the corn cobs on the river. Uh, they're two round cylinders uh, that rise up right off of the river. Willis Tower, completed in 1974, was the tallest building in the world until 1998. It's still the tallest building in Chicago. It's um, dark black. It's got different levels of what we call tubes and is, again, visible from all over the city if you look up. And it's just a wonderful example of mid-century modernism. Designed by Chicago's architect Jeannie Gang and completed in December 2020, the 101-story St. Regis building is the tallest in the world designed by a woman. It's clad in six different shades of blue glass and composed of three sections or vertical sections and they have they create vertical curves as you look at the building. Today Chicago's more than 4,000 buildings form a stunning view of the skyline and together they make Chicago the city of architecture. Chicago Architectural Center's River Cruise offers day and night tours and runs through Thanksgiving. Reporting by Angela Moy. NTD News, Chicago. That's the latest in the NTD business team. I'm myself, Paul Graney. Follow me on Twitter, though, if you're there. Oh, and if you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.